0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis.
1: Remaining faithful during the current crisis in the church. If a pollster went through the average American Catholic parish and asked the people in the pews when the current crisis in the church began, he would get a variety of answers. Probably the most popular answer would be, what crisis? Unfortunately, all too many Catholics live in the blithe ignorance that a crisis even exists. They have been lulled to sleep by homilies telling us that warm, unfocused feelings of peace and love are all that the people need to get to heaven. Perhaps the second most popular answer would make reference to the abuse scandals of the early 21st century. Others who are somewhat better informed might mention the changes caused by the Second Vatican Council of the early 60s. However, as scholar and author Gustavo Solomeo will explain, the roots of the current crisis go back a lot further, to the early years of the 20th century. That is the unfortunate story that Mr. Solomeo explains in his essay, Remaining Faithful During the Current Crisis in the Church.
0: Part 1. Explaining the Change of Mentality that Made the Current Crisis Possible Many Catholics have traced the philosophical and theological roots of the present crisis inside the Church. This research does much to explain the evolution of doctrines that undermine the faith. However, it does not explain everything. There are other aspects of the practice of the faith involving habits, culture, and customs that also changed. Understanding these developments is an essential part of the fight for the Church. Catholic thinker Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira explained the process that led to a change of mentality inside the Church and played a role in the acceptance of erroneous doctrines, as well as new ways of being and thinking that departed from Catholic tradition. This change in mentality explains why Catholics were prepared to accept modernism, almost without resistance after the death of St. Pius X, who fought against it. It helps explain why after Vatican II, Catholic faithful accepted with euphoria the abandonment of cassocks, religious habits, chapel veils, and other pious customs. His penetrating analysis of this psychological and spiritual phenomenon show how all this was made possible. The shift prepared the doctrinal changes that would come. An outline of his analysis follows. The proclamation of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception, 1854, and especially the dogma of papal infallibility and the primacy of the Pope, 1870, provoked a worldwide wave of enthusiasm and fervor among Catholics. Episcopate, clergy, and the faithful all applauded these proclamations. At the same time, religious congregations and Catholic works multiplied. Missionaries spread the gospel to all continents, despite persecutions in Asia and Africa. The faith flourished despite hostile governments in France and Germany. The clergy was generally zealous and worthy. Numerous saints appeared, some of whom were beatified or canonized. However, optimism took hold of a good part of the Episcopate, the clergy, and the faithful. They fell prey to complacency with the apostolic successes that were obtained. The consequence was a loss of momentum. It did not immediately lead to decay, but to a diminishing desire to go higher. This spirit affected the clergy and religious orders and had a negative impact upon the faithful. This diminishment of fervor led to a stagnation that progressively affected the clergy from top to bottom, causing a consequent decay in the fervor of the faithful. According to the famous French Cistercian abbot and writer Dom Jean-Baptiste Chautard, 1858-1935, there is a relationship between the clergy and the people, which he expressed in this way. Quote, if the priest is a saint, the people will be fervent. If the priest is fervent, the people will be pious. If the priest is pious, the people will at least be decent. But if the priest is only decent, the people will be godless. The spiritual generation is always one degree less intense in its life Than those who beget it in Christ. This spiritual decay was characterized by the loss of fervor, the spirit of self denial, the desire for renunciation, and a deadening of enthusiasm for the faith. It gradually led to a change of mentality in the clergy and the faithful by which they lost the notion of the militant church. Indeed, long before the Second Vatican Council, a sentimental and sweetened piety spread among Catholics. On the sidelines, some fervent priests battled against liberals who preached revolutionary doctrines. However, most mainstream Catholics heard sermons or read publications that contained pious and abstract considerations about humility, charity, and other virtues valid for any time and place— but completely disconnected from the concrete battles of the church. When preachers spoke of combat or struggle, they referred almost exclusively to spiritual combat or the struggle against the passions and bad inclinations. They never, or almost never, mentioned the fight against the enemies of the church, whether they be external or internal. This one-sided preaching led to the systematic omission of any idea of militancy. It contributed to a deformation of the Catholic mentality. Catholics assumed a merely passive attitude toward the enemies of the church. The loss of militant spirit did not directly lead to the acceptance of modern errors and deviations. However, it did contribute to the weakening of resistance to such errors and deviations. It changed the mindset of countless Catholics who came to believe that to fight error or admonish a person in error is not charitable. The loss of the militant spirit produced a state of prostration, drowsiness, and boredom. The general lethargy surrounding this state of affairs concealed a discontent and an undefined uneasiness that awakened in people a desire for change. This phenomenon was aggravated by the Second Vatican Council, which created an atmosphere of optimism, ecumenism, and dialogue that excluded the idea of struggle. The times immediately following the Council were marked by euphoria and optimism that is hard to understand by those who did not live through those tragic days. Optimistic expressions of change pervaded everything. Everywhere there was talk of adjournamento, participation in the vernacular liturgy, and increased participation of the faithful in the life of the Church. The famous quote attributed to John the Twenty-Third said it all, quote, We must open the windows so that fresh air can enter the Church. Unquote. When the idea of struggle is absent, the spirit of vigilance diminishes, or ceases altogether. The lack of vigilance, along with lukewarmness and little faith, had bitter, but not unexpected, fruit in the infidelity of so many priests and prelates that gave rise to the sexual abuse scandals of the present day. Thus, the grave situation of the papacy today is not the cause of the present crisis, but rather, to some extent, a consequence of this crisis. The present pontificate could not have taken place without the process of a profound deterioration of the whole social body of the church, including the episcopate, clergy, and faithful. This process destroyed the natural defenses, the antibodies that would have allowed the body to react. Unfortunately, not only the head, but all parts of the body are sick. A mysterious virus infects the entire organism. Not even drastic surgery can bring the body back to health. In non-metaphorical terms, the very unlikely election of a conservative or even a holy pope in a future conclave will not be enough to restore full normality in the life of the church. At the same time, The possibility of the church emerging from this crisis and returning to normal is impossible without the restoration of temporal society that is affected by a crisis of apocalyptic proportions. Thus, only divine intervention can save the church and the world from the chaos and madness that now seems to reign everywhere. This crossroads makes all the more timely the message of Our Lady of Fatima, who foresaw these times and proposed divine solutions. Part 2. Overcoming the Temptations Caused by Human Weakness in the Church Many Catholics justify their inertia and passivity by repeating to themselves and others the gospel passage that says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it st matthew chapter 16 verse 18 thus this promise to the church supposedly dispenses us from combating those working to destroy her from within and without god cannot break his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail however it should not be understood in a fatalistic sense we cannot conclude that we should leave to God alone the task of watching over and preserving the church, the faith, and customs. God makes use of secondary causes. Moreover, He wants us to demonstrate our fidelity. We cannot stand idly by while the church of God is outraged and souls are lost to eternal damnation rather than salvation. Church history shows how this promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail did not prevent many nations from losing the faith. It did not save many flourishing Christian communities from being wiped out, as seen, for example, by the Islamic conquest of northern Africa. The French theologian, Father Joseph de Saint-Marie OCD, explains, quote, The real issue is, We must be faithful to the Church, even when her hierarchy, through a mysterious divine permission, is failing so dramatically. Her infallibility is by no means in doubt, nor is the promise of Christ that the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. However, this promise does not mean that there will not be times of darkness." One such period of darkness is the current crisis of sexual abuse scandals, where believing in the sanctity of the church is a trial for many. The church is holy and pure in itself, but composed of sinners in its members. Therefore, by rejecting the scandals, we are not turning our back on the church but rejecting and saying no to the sins sometimes committed by eminent church members. Far from contradicting the holiness of the church, the infidelities of members of the clergy and the hierarchy underscore how only an institution of divine origin could endure for centuries, despite human weaknesses and the tendency toward evil that is the inheritance of original sin. The church remains as holy and sanctifying as it was in the beginning and will be forever because her soul is the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying spirit. She alone has the truth, the way, and the life. She alone continues the work of he who immolated himself for her. Quote, Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleaning it by the laver of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. See Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Pope Pius XII confirms this explanation in the encyclical Mystici Corporis Christi, 1943. Quote, and if at times there appears in the Church something that indicates the weakness of our human nature, it should not be attributed to her juridical constitution, but rather to that regrettable inclination to evil found in each individual which its divine founder permits, even at times in the most exalted members of his mystical body, for the purpose of testing the virtue of the shepherds, no less than of the flocks, and that all may increase the merit of their Christian faith. For, as we said above, Christ did not wish to exclude sinners from his church. Unquote. One might object that the church cannot be holy when most members of the clergy and hierarchy are totally corrupt. Homosexual scandals by members of the clergy are reported, and even by conservative media outlets, with extreme insistence and exuberance of lurid details. These reports create the impression in the minds of the faithful that not a single priest or bishop remains faithful to their vows and adheres to sound doctrine. This is not true. Despite the vast scope of the crisis, it is clear that a large number of seminarians, priests, and bishops have remained faithful to their vows. We must be careful that our righteous indignation at the crimes perpetrated by ecclesiastics unfaithful to their noble calling does not lead us to revolt against the church itself, despair, and even loss of the faith. That is why we must combat the climate of sensationalism trumpeted by the secularist and even some Catholic and conservative media which is unfortunately aggravated by the cynicism of many Ecclesiastics. We need to avoid a feverish state when reporting or commenting on the current crisis. We have to keep the faith, and we have to not lose objectivity and logic. Cold reasoning and common sense are very important in dramatic situations like the present one. When facing a crisis, we tend to seek an easy, effective, and complete solution. Such easy solutions often neglect to understand in depth the real characteristics of the crisis and its possible causes. As a result, such solutions aggravate the crisis by adding new problems, which are often more difficult to solve than previous ones. This happens with political, economic, and other crises that involve natural events. It is all the more true when dealing with crises in Holy Mother Church. In this case, supernatural elements of revelation and divine grace are added to the natural and human elements. Thus, we must avoid a naturalistic perspective that looks at the present crisis of the Church with purely human eyes, without taking into account its supernatural aspect. We then become liable to falling into traps set by the enemies of the Church. A naturalistic attitude leads us to propose human solutions of a sociological or political nature, When what is needed are matters of supernatural faith, theology, piety, and sanctity. Part 3 Growing in Hope. Many Catholics are well aware of the crisis in the Church. They are often tempted to be discouraged and abandon the struggle. The devil makes things worse by whispering in our ears the stronger temptation that the gates of hell have prevailed against the church, contrary to the words of our Lord. See Matthew 16, verse 18. With so many reasons to be discouraged, we must cultivate a supernatural hope in God's plan of triumph in history that will protect us against despair, Discouragement and cynicism. Our hope in Christ and His Most Holy Mother must not lead us to the inaction of quietism. The virtue of hope does not work in this way. Our hope should impel us to action for the glory of God and the good of His Church. In other eras of crisis in the Church, the faithful have experienced and overcome similar temptations examples abound. The Protestant revolt of the 16th century saw entire episcopates abandon the church and embrace heresy. In response, the church convoked the Council of Trent to fight the new heresy. Good popes like the great Saint Pius V appeared on the scene. There were intrepid warriors of the faith like Saint Ignatius of Loyola, Saint Charles Borromeo, and Saint Peter Canisius true reformers, or rather, restorers of the decadent religious orders emerged, such as the great Carmelite St. Teresa of Avila and the great Franciscan St. Peter of Alcantara, this work of regeneration, known as the Counter-Reformation, recovered much of the terrain that the Church had lost. At the same time, Spain and Portugal, which were practically on the sidelines of the Protestant Revolt, sent their ships abroad. They brought this renewed Catholicism to the New World and Asia. A powerful new Christianity appeared on this side of the Atlantic and in the East. The next great crisis in the Catholic Church was Jansenism, followed by the great storm of the French Revolution, which practically destroyed the visible structures of the Church in France. This tempest later spread the germs of egalitarianism, relativism, and liberalism throughout Europe. These errors gave rise to so-called Catholic liberalism. The Catholic reaction to all of these isms was a revival of religion. The Church was blessed with great saints, such as St. John Vianney and St. John Bosco. There were pontificates of two great anti-liberal popes, Gregory XVI and Pius IX. The history of the Church should give us reason for hope in the present crisis which shakes the Church to her foundations. God takes advantage of each crisis to serve as an occasion for the growth of His Church. The only condition for success is that we remain faithful in these times of great affliction. During periods of crisis, God demands greater fidelity from us. It is not enough that we be regular, average, or typical Catholics. We cannot be simply pious souls that lead carefree lives. We must be fighters, soldiers of Christ, faithful defenders of Holy Mother Church. Only then can we expect victory.
1: This concludes Remaining Faithful During the Current Crisis in the Church by Gustavo Salomeo. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.